The widow's cloak, what does it cover? Just sorrows or so much more? That's coming up next right here on The Right Stuff. And welcome to The Right Stuff. I'm the Queen, Parker J. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, we're going to be talking to my returning guest co-host and contributor today, Lynn Tagawa. She is the author of the short novella, The Widow's Cloak. And if you remember, Lynn, she was with us when we talked about her book, The Shenandoah Road. I thoroughly enjoyed that story. So this book takes place in that same universe, if you will. I can't wait to tell you about it in just a few moments. As always, want to thank you for your support. We have been showcasing Christian authors worldwide for the past nine years. And as God gives us grace, we'll continue to do so. To find out how you can help out, simply go to patreon.com slash right stuff and see what you can do. And as always, we covet your prayers. To stay up to date with PJC Media, simply go to pjcmedia.net, click on that pink follow button, and you'll never, ever have to miss a show. We just started our new YouTube channel, so go ahead and subscribe by going to youtube.com slash at pjcmedia. You'll see my lovely face, and it says the right stuff, so make sure you go ahead and subscribe today. We want to make sure this information gets out to everyone because we want people to know that Christian fiction and Christian nonfiction isn't just John MacArthur and Amish romance. There's so much more. So go ahead and subscribe today for exclusive content, updated shows, and so much more. Go ahead, click that button so you can get notified every time we put new content on that channel. And lastly, I want to thank you all for your support of my newest release called A Chance with Zhao Xin. Your response has been absolutely phenomenal. It's part of the Last Chance Bride series. So go ahead, pick up your copy today. And so I'm going to bring my guest on. Lynn, how are you doing? I am well, and I am excited about the launch of The Widow's Cloak, which, as you mentioned, is a novella in the Russells series. What's this series? What are you trying to let readers know about? The beginning of the series was about the Great Awakening. I was just wondering, what would it be like to live in the 1740s in the colonies as it was at that time, America? And there was a great revival. There were some notable preachers like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. And this even gets into secular textbooks about this revival and, and it, how it uh, affected people. And so I thought, I want to make something interesting. I want to make a story that would give you a kind of a you are there feeling. And I also wanted to get into the different people groups that were there living at the time. There were people coming in, immigrating from Northern Ireland and different places like that. And so that gave me another layer of things to explore. And as I was doing that, I was also setting the groundwork for the third book in my series, which has to do with the American Revolution. And you may ask, well, what is the connection between those two things, the Great Awakening and the American Revolution? Well, I'll just throw out the question. 
if our country had not been settled in Christian thought and affected by Christian conversions, would we have had the same kind of war, the same kind of revolution, or would it have maybe been a little bit more like the French Revolution, which was an awful, horrible, bloody event that was really not at all like our war for independence. And so along the way, I also wrote about the French and Indian War, which was kind of a bridge that period of time and and actually a catalyst to the American Revolution. And the Widow's Cloak is a story about two characters, two side characters, if you will, that appear in the heart of courage. And so I suspect that I'm not the only one, the only writer who falls in love with a couple characters from a book, but, you know, they're just minor characters, so to speak. So you can't spend a lot of time on them. And so that's what I did was I started from scratch and I said, let's figure out these people's backstory and give the behind the scenes, you know, how did they get to where we see them in the heart of courage? So that's how I came to that. One thing that is extremely interesting is how you contrasted the belief systems of two different wars about independence, because the French Revolution came from a more secularized thought process, whereas the war for independence for the U.S. came at this is our God-given right to worship and to do we want to do. So you have two different wars going on here. Well, relatively around the same time period, and democracy is growing. You have monarchy being toppled over. And of course, we have to use a modern day equivalent of the Great Awakening. Right now, today in 2023, everyone has been talking about the Asbury revival that has gone on for like two weeks. They just closed the doors recently. But for two weeks, people were going there and they were experiencing a revival. And there was a lot of skepticism going on. But one thing that skepticism couldn't do was say this was not happening. And it lets us know that the Lord works in the affairs of men, that he is ultimately the one in charge, that when you think society is just all going over the cliff, ready to just crash into the abyss, the Lord reaches down and saves you. Because in all of our stories, that all of our stories reflect, there is a Savior. See, with the secular thought, there is no Savior. Basically, you are the God of your own destiny, the God of your own fate. You just have to use logic and reason. Just use the information available, the material world, to pull you out of a spiritual abyss. And you can't do that. And so that's why I liked about your book is that both Mary and Ian They are dealing with hard things, hard questions. And for Ian, let's talk about him real quickly, because he's one of the characters in this lovely, richly detailed story. He's dealing with death, grief, and pain. What had happened to him in the beginning of the book? The story opens with the Battle of Culloden. And I know a lot of my readers will not know what that is. In fact, I didn't 10 years ago just wasn't something they taught in school. Oh, let's talk about Scotland and the Battle of Culloden and what that meant or 
you know, let's talk about the Jacobites or who they were, Jacobites, followers of Jacob. Well, you know, there was this big split when, you know, how kings are hereditary. And so there was this big split in Britain when the last of the Stuarts turned out to be Catholic, and many in Britain were Protestant, and they were like, we don't want this anymore. We don't want a Catholic monarch. They were remembering Bloody Mary. Okay. And so they found a guy who was like a cousin. He was in Germany. He was a cousin. He was related to the royal family. And so they plucked him out of there, this German-speaking guy, and he became George I. So, you know, that whole line of Georges that, you know, George II, George III, that came from Germany because we were desperate to have a Protestant monarch. And so the problem was some people were like, uh, you, you just can't do that. Um, he isn't in the direct line. It should be this guy named James. And James goes into exile. And uh, so he has a kid and, and so forth. And, and his son is named Charles. And he becomes the Bonnie Prince Charlie of Scottish history. Okay. Because for one thing, a lot of the Highland Scots were, if not Catholic, they were Catholic in background. And so they weren't as troubled by the whole Catholic Protestant thing. But it wasn't just Catholic, okay? There were others who were troubled by this sidestep of the natural line of succession. So there were movements, uprisings, and one was in 1715, which was put down. And then the second, which was quite a big deal, was in 1745. And that, the Bonnie Prince led an army basically all around Scotland fighting the, the British. And it ended with the Battle of Culloden. The Scots were massacred at Culloden. And essentially, my character, the book opens with the tail end of that battle, and my character is waiting for his dad to come back, and his dad never does. And instead, Ian is captured and thrown into prison and sent across the ocean as an indentured servant because one form of punishment, which didn't cost the government any money, was to uh, essentially sell them into bondage for seven years. And so indentured servitude was a system at that time where, kind of like mortgaging your house, if you really needed a big chunk of money and you were impoverished, that's how you got across the ocean to emigrate or something like that. But typically, it wasn't more than five years. But for a prisoner, it was seven. So here's Ian, and he's got seven years. And he's hurting because he's lost his dad. He's suffering. He's in servitude. It's a strange land. He misses his home. He'll never see it again. It was burnt. The British not only won the battle, it was like they tried to stamp out the Scottish people, even the, the tartan, the plaid that they wore. You know, it was symbolic. Each clan had their own colors and stuff. It became illegal. So all of that was gone. And Ian is wondering where God was. I mean, Prince Charles was saying, oh, God is with us. We can't lose. Well, that didn't pan out, obviously. So that was his story going into what happens. 
Now, for our listeners out there, you can't see her, but I'm looking at her. And as she's telling this story, Lynn's face is just filled with emotion because she's really thinking about this character's journey. And you may be thinking, well, it's not 1700s. It's not this, but I have lost everything. And in this case, he also lost his identity as a Scotsman. He lost his family. He lost his home. He lost his freedom. And so one thing that has been a major thing about slavery and indentured servitude was if they were the same. They weren't the same, but pretty much they were pretty awful. (laughs) Both were pretty awful. The only thing that indentured servitude had was an end date. That's all that it had. And you do a really good job depicting indentured servitude for these people. But even then, you're cognizant of the fact that the only thing that kept him separate was the color of his skin. And he was really bothered by it because even though he was an indentured servant, he was still subjected to very rigorous, hard lifestyle. And there's one scene in the book very early on where he hears this overseer because he works at a plantation, Indigo Plantation, I think it was. The first one was Indigo in Maryland. This was a real plantation, by the way. And so I can't tell you for sure what they grew, but it was probably a mishmash of things. Yeah, not every plantation was like in Gone with the Wind. Those are actually quite rare. A lot of plantations, particularly down in the South, were smaller operations of maybe 10 to 20 different enslaved people, stuff like that. The really big ones were very rare, but they were there. They did exist because there was a whole culture of this down there. And so we have his story and you can just see what's going on with him. And there's a scene in there where he's talking to the overseer and he beats this guy and they can hear it going. But this is back in the days. It's not your business. Stay out of trouble. And the guy goes, what's he mad about? Why is he upset? Because he's got a wife and he got good clothes. Why is he wanting to run away? <laughs> and Ian totally gets it's like slavery is slavery. Like, doesn't matter that you've given me a gold cage. I'm still in a cage. I'd rather be in the treetops without a cage than a gold cage, you know. And so he understood that. And I love that connection that you made there. Let's switch it over to our other character here, which is Mary. And Mary, you just freaking feel just sorry for because it always seems, particularly in history, women get the rough end of the stick. But thankfully, both Ian and her got rough ends of the stick in just different ways. So let's talk about Mary because she's in a much more vulnerable position because she is female. Yes. Mary, I'm not going to tell you all her backstory because gradually we learn it through the story. And it's not that. It's more so like her situation as an indentured servant from that point of view. Yeah. So we open up with her situation, which is in this Tidewater household. If you recall back in the 1700s, say in Virginia, there were different parts of Virginia. There were the, I'm going to call them the establishment elites in Williamsburg. And then you had the backcountry where you had the farmers. They weren't all poor, but they were often Presbyterian. They were They were just the average Joes, I'm going to say that. But towards the coast and in the bigger plantations, we had these landowners who not only owned slaves, they often had uh, hired servants or indentured servants. And so Mary is indentured to one of these families. And 
The young lady marries William Byrd, and so she's brought into this new family, and this has already occurred at the opening of the story. So she is taken advantage of. Now, this is a real person, and sometimes this is tricky because when I write about real people, I try to be as faithful to what history tells us as I possibly can and not just go inventing things, right? Well, the person in my story who takes advantage of Mary, his father left a diary and it was full of things. I mean, he just mentions it offhand, the things he does, but he wasn't exactly a moral person, okay? Let me just leave it like that. He takes advantage of people, and he takes advantage of young women who are servants. And so I don't think I am, like, smearing the character of anyone if I... Well, is it a smear? Because it's not like he can come back and sue you for libel or anything like that. But what I like is that you try as much to stay true to the authenticity of the time while allowing for the creative license that has. And I think this is important too, but it shows just how back in the day, they wrote a lot of things down. They really did. They wrote everything down. Yeah, did this, did that. And then you don't think you'll be a historical document in the year 2023. It's like this. I've recently read a Civil War letter and these Civil War letters are very heart-wrenching, but amazing the level of conversation they have because they can talk really well descriptively about their world around them. And it was just casual talk. (laughs) Our casual talk is like, 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 like. (laughs) We don't have the ability to describe, but it makes sense they had more of that ability because they, they were not inundated with images like we are. So we don't have to refer to anything. If I wanted to describe someone's face, I wouldn't say, oh, they're just this black guy with gray hair. No, I would say, well, he's a rather weathered man with face like this and like that. You would say things like that. They had a command of language. They really did because they had to describe the world around them and explain the world around them. And English, which is a very difficult language, is actually quite precise in a lot of different ways. Other languages that are also difficult are not always as precise as English in some ways, not every way, obviously, but in some ways there's a precision to English, I think, that makes it interesting. We tend to have a word for everything. <laughs> so there, there is something to that. And then sometimes we don't have words for really important things. So, but yeah, that's just my personal opinion, dear listener. Take with a grain of salt. I may not know what I'm talking about at all. But you can tell from the level of detail that Lynn is telling you, there's a lot going on in this little novella. And it reads very quickly. The action moves very well. You are in the 1700s. You are right there smelling the wind. You feel the air. You understand their plight. You understand the religious divides that are going on here because there's one point where Ian needs to get medicine for someone who is dying. But even the way he named that particular bark, she said, if I name it this way, they're going to think I'm this. Is there another name you can use? And so that's just how enrich this tale is. It's very enriching. Lots of different things are going on, particularly with this particular subject. Religion was just the order of the day. There's a lot going on here. And with the French, if I could go back really quickly, Lynn, I would love to get your thoughts about this because it's a contrast of thoughts. With the French Revolution and around the Enlightenment, what had happened where people were religiously fatigued by religion. They were fatigued by it because it's after the Thirty Years' War 100 years war, people are dying all over the place. 
back and forth all in the name of God. And so for the French and the Europeans, they were done. They were completely done with it, you know. But here in America, we're like, this is all we got going on. And that's one thing you do in this book during this Great Awakening is faith becomes very real. But sometimes it got a little out of hand. (laughs) It really did. So what are your thoughts about that? I think especially when we look back at this period of time, we forget their immediate history. They're looking back at the Reformation. They're looking back at the persecutions around that time. It was a time of great struggle, people being burnt at the stake for their faith. Scotland in particular went through a difficult time during the 1680s which were known as the killing times, where people of faith were essentially persecuted by Charles II's minions. And now Charles I wasn't any better. He decided that since God had made him king, anything he did was right. And the divine right of kings, that whole philosophy. And a Scottish minister named Samuel Rutherford wrote a treatise, Rex, the law, and the king. Well, he was exiled. That didn't go over well, I think. I don't think it went over well. He was exiled to a a lonely, cold town. And then later on, a warrant was sent for his arrest, and he was going to be executed. But he was already dying. So, you know, he was kind of like, well, hey, a greater magistrate has called me, so you can't have me. But these are the people that our characters, you know, the people in, in that day read. And conversely, you know, getting back to the French, I don't know how many of us recall the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. You may have heard of that. And that was an event where basically you had, you know, Catholics and Protestants in France, and basically they locked up the city and, and killed as many of the Protestants as they could find. And so there were a lot of exiles out of France. They settled in Northern Ireland. They settled in the New World. And I just discovered not too long ago that I'm part French. My son took a DNA test. What? Where did you get this French? (laughs) I love it. I've done a little bit of, you know, research into my family. I don't have any French. Well, I probably have a couple of these French exiles in my family tree somewhere. And so that was a common thing. And so you think about France. France has basically eroded in terms of godliness. They're kicking out the godly people. And and then the French Revolution comes. It's, it's just almost like the judgment of God. So you have this, all this background. Plus, of course, throw in the idea that, you know, there really was no freedom of religion as we think of it. It just wasn't a concept. So going back to their day, I think we can, if we keep those things in mind, and these are little things I like to put in my author's note where I explain, okay, the Catholics had it hard in the colonies, and I explained how hard, and I explained why. Because, you know, to us, that seems unreasonable. But if you paint the picture, you see what they just went through, you'll understand that it really wasn't that bad considering, which, you know, it's kind of a lame excuse, but still, it's in the context. You have to take everything in context. 
And so I hope I do that. I hope I can paint a picture of what it was like, but in the correct context. One thing that you do effectively is show how the bigger stories affect the individuals. It's no different when we look at a history, we're going to see an event that may have shaped something. Like right now, we can use the Ukraine war with Russia. We're going to use that event. It will go in the history books, however it turns out, and it will be an event. But we who are living now know that there are individuals affected by that. Individuals are going to have stories that intersect with the bigger picture. And I think what you take away from the widow's cloak is that your story may be individual against the backdrop of the major event. And God is still aware of you. God's cloak still surrounds you and protects you. And we're going to keep it right there. Keep right there. I know we did a lot of the history of this particular book because it's part of a bigger universe that you've created. And so I don't want to go too much into what happens to these characters. But what we did is show you the pathway of these characters and how history really does affect us on an individual level as well as on a more macroscopic level. And that's what you do so effectively well. And when you understand that your story still matters in the big picture, it does. I had a guest on my show last year for a Halloween edition where we talked to Christian authors who write darker fiction, like spiritual warfare, things of that nature. And he said, there are millions of nobodies, millions of nobodies that have passed through the years. And God knows every single one of them. Every single one of them. We may know a big name, but there are millions who the Lord knows that we will never know through history. So yeah, that is what gives us encouragement. You may be sitting there, dear listener, and you may think your pain doesn't matter because Mary and Ian are both in pain. They're both in pain. And they're both wondering, where is God in the midst of my pain? This hurts. Does it matter? And those are questions that are asked in Lynn Tagawa's The Widow's Cloak. It's a novella that's available on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. So make sure you go ahead and pick up your copy. Now, Lynn, if people want to get in contact with you, where can they find you online? They can find me at my website, www.lynnetagawa.com and uh, like me on Facebook. Lynn, in the few moments we have left, go ahead and encourage those aspiring authors out there today. I would like to encourage anyone who has a story to just go ahead and start putting it down. Because I'm telling you, I'm not a writer. I'm not. My sister was the writer and I was the nerd. And I did not start writing until my kids were grown. So if I can write, anyone can write. Lynn, thank you so much for being with us today. Really enjoyed having you and cannot wait to have you back and have you back real soon. Thank you so much for inviting me. And we were talking today to Lynn Tagawa. She is the author of the book, The Widow's Cloak, available on Amazon.com. I hope you were invigorated and inspired by just the historical context of this book. There's so much going on and you're going to want to get the other books in the series because Lynn has poured herself into it. She's done all this research. You have to get the other books in the series. You are not going to be disappointed. I love how Lynn really writes her tales. She writes it in such a lyrical way. 
that you are transported to that time frame. And that's a really a good skill set to have. We can all tell like scintillating dialogue, but can you put me in the forest? Can you put me on the ship? Can you put me under the heat of the sun on the plantation? Lynn Tagawa does that and she does it well. So make sure you go ahead and get a taste of it today of the Widow's Cloak and then make sure you follow along for the ride. One thing I love that Lynn showed us is that when you write, it doesn't matter when you start, is that you use the gift that God gave you. So go ahead, pick up the pen and write stuff. Thank you so much for joining me for this edition of The Right Stuff. I'm the queen, Parker J, and you have a wonderful, absolutely glorious, blessed day.